Too close. It's a very th fine line between being too far away and too close. So we're going to try that. That's better. Good morning, everyone. Sorry for the delay. Uh, glad to be with you this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, glad that we can take a portion of our worship time this morning uh, to study and think about God's Word. Uh, it is a wonderful blessing. He has given us uh, His Word to be able to know some of Him, some about Him, to know how we ought to live. And we have an opportunity to study that this morning. So the, uh, the verse that we read was from Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to get there. Uh, in a few minutes, we will end up there as we go through. But the uh, topic for this morning is what happens when they ask. And I'm actually going to kind of springboard from what Chuck talked about last Sunday, uh, where he looked at a couple of passages from the Gospel of John, um, where Jesus emphasized to the apostles that, that their love for one another and that their love that was of the type that he had for them, that is a sacrificial love, was going to be a major component of how the world would be drawn to Christianity. Um, so, for example, uh, in John 13, 34, and 35, just to sort of uh, re-familiarize ourselves with these passages, and then we will move forward, Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And of course, later in the chapter, as Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, The glory, this is in John 17, 22 and 23, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And so the idea there was that a major component of our sort of outreach, our, our mission of spreading the good news is going to be found in how we live our lives. Um, I say major uh, because it's not the only part. Uh, Chuck alluded to that last week, um, that it's not as though this is in place of talking about specific ideas that are taught by the New Testament. Uh, you know, we can see that. We think about, for example, Paul. And what does Luke tell us Paul's custom was when he would go to a town? He wouldn't just come into a town, live a good life, and hope that somebody would come in and say, hey, stranger, why are you such a nice stranger in our town? Uh, he would do that, obviously. He would live the life that he ought to live. But in addition to that, what did Paul do? Paul would go, what does Luke say? It was his custom. He would go to the synagogues on Saturday. He would engage um, so it's not as though engagement and, and, and bringing ideas to people's attention is not a part. It's just not the only part. These two concepts sort of work together. Um, and there's a lot in the world that people can look at. Is that true? There's a lot of things that people can, can find beautiful. This, again, was part of the point last week, was that, that seeing the beauty of a Christian life uh, can, can draw people's attention. Now, of course, we know, for example, Paul even talks about how uh, in Romans chapter 5 he makes the point that, verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Very seldom does that happen. He says, and perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. Now, we're going to come back to Romans chapter 5 in a minute. Um, but the point is that it's not as though Christians are the only people who are willing to sacrifice for each other. 
But that quality of sacrificing oneself, of loving, of giving of oneself, is indeed something that is atypical. What does atypical mean? It means it ain't normal, uh, different, weird. Um, uh, big, a good definition of that is that it's not normal. Well, what's normal? Normal is what everyone else is, and we are not. At least, hopefully, we are different. Uh, and the world is going to notice that difference and theoretically ask. And that's, that's where we're going. But there's a lot that the world can choose to look at. And different people are going to find different things attractive. Different people are going to look at different types of lifestyles and, and see that as something worth emulating. But there is something about sacrificing and, and giving of oneself, not just for those that one loves. Jesus himself said that even the tax collectors do that, right? Even they love the ones that love them. Uh, but there's something very powerful about living as one ought to, being gracious, loving one's enemies, things along those lines. And so, let's look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Probably familiar with this passage, but um, Peter says this. He says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make defense of anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So, so Peter here is even expressing this idea that, that when people see your good life, when they see the hope that is within you, that's going to get their attention and they're going to ask. And so the balance point then is that we live a good life, we strive to be who we ought to be because we are grateful to God for what He has graciously done for us, because we value Him and we realize this is how we ought to live, this is what we were designed to do, this is, these are the good works that we were prepared beforehand to do. And so we do these things, the world notices, and they ask, why are you so different? And so what I want us to think about for just a couple of minutes this morning is the other side of that coin, which is what do we do when they ask? You know? Um, we live in a time where, on the one hand, a lot of folks like to argue about a lot of things, and then there are other folks that are really uncomfortable with arguing because so many people are arguing so much. Uh, and so we sort of end up almost bifurcating these two things and sort of set them opposed to one another. It's living a good life versus talking about Jesus. And these two things are not at odds. They are two sides of a coin. And so I just want us to look at that other side of the coin for a minute, which is, well, what do we do when they ask? And again, they might look at different things and they might not be attracted to our lives as Christians because we live in a time where there are a lot of options, aren't there? You know, you think about worldviews, you think about belief systems, you think about, you know, what should be important to a person. We live in a time where, much like in other areas of our lives, the number of choices that we have are just growing exponentially. Uh, a classic example, maybe a cliched example, but I'm going to use it. Think about television. Some of you remember when we had three channels. I sort of remember when we had three channels. That worked out well because I could remember them all, one, two, three. Then we started getting more channels. I'm like, I'm out of fingers. I don't know where I go now. But you had three channels. You had the VHF channels, right? So, you know, 6, 13, that kind of thing. And then you got the UHF channels, right? 21, 68. I'm using the Birmingham channels, of course, because I'm in Birmingham. This is where I grew up. So I, these are the ones I'm thinking about. And so, oh, now we got like five or six channels. And still, if the president comes on, he's on all of them. Um, and then we get cable. 
And then suddenly you have all of these other channels and you can watch all sorts of amazing things. Well, theoretically amazing things. Um, and so, you know, you've got Nickelodeon. Now my childhood's coming up. You know, you've got Nickelodeon. You've got the USA Channel. And you can watch cartoons and Transformers and maybe other things as well. And now, what do we have? Well, then you've got satellite television, television from space, which, of course, excites me. Uh, and you've got even more channels. And now there's, there's streaming, right? There's YouTube, there's Netflix, there's Amazon, there's Hulu, there's Voodoo, there's this, there's that. There's all of these different things. I mean, there's, you just, you could, you, 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 there's so much content out there that, that you almost couldn't live an entire life to watch it all. Uh, that would be a lot of television. We have so many options, and things can be so uh, a peculiar and so specified to a very particular subgroup of people. So many more options. I don't have to watch Flipper because I'm really into uh, the way that, uh, I don't know, ball bearings work in, in machines. And there's an entire channel devoted to machine stuff on YouTube. And so I don't have to watch the thing that everybody else watches. I can find my own thing, man. And I can find the other people that like that same thing. And I can kind of feel better about myself. Well, the same kind of thing can happen with worldviews. Have you ever been to the grocery store? I'm sure you have. If you've been to the grocery store recently, there are things that you can buy on the shelf of a grocery store that were unheard of when I was younger, when, when you were younger, uh, when even you younger ones were younger. There's just more options. If you think about restaurants, I won't spend too much time on this, but have you ever been to the Cheesecake Factory? If you have, you know where I'm going with this. What, what, what kind of food? Name is Cheesecake Factory. What kind of food do they serve at the Cheesecake Factory, those of you who have been? Yeah, that's right, all of them. All of it. The place is called Cheesecake Factory, so you think, okay, it's going to specifically be about cheesecakes and desserts. And then, and then you walk in or roll in, in my case, to a Cheesecake Factory uh, restaurant, and you go to sit down, and you see at the table, there's a whole bunch of copies of War and Peace sitting at the table. And so you sit down, and you start to peruse it, and you realize this isn't a very long 400, 500-page novel. This is the menu. So someone comes up, a waiter comes up to you, and you say, well, well, okay, so I, I, maybe you sit down at the table. They didn't have the big book. And so you ask, well, what kind of food do you serve at this place? And the waiter says, well, all of it, sir, or ma'am, depending upon who you are. And you say, well, yeah, all of it, not really. Well, yes, all of it. If, if, if a human being has ever concocted a recipe, we can make it for you. There's so many options. I don't go to Cheesecake Factory that often because it is a... It takes me time to figure out what I want to eat at Zaxby's. And Zaxby's doesn't have that large of a menu. Cheesecake factories like everything that anybody has ever invented ever in terms of food. I can't decide that. I'll have cheesecake. Uh, and so we have so many options in life that, that, that it becomes that much more imperative for us to be able to answer, or at least to begin to answer, the questions that people ask when, out of all of the myriad things that they could possibly be attracted to in terms of how one lives one's life, they notice us. We have an opportunity. What do we do with that opportunity? Uh, and so that's one of, what I want us to think about for just a couple of minutes. So, so people are going to ask, what is the hope that lies within us? And what does Peter say we ought to do? He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. To ask for a reason for the hope. And that's what I want us to kind of think about in terms of answering that question. Not necessarily how does one become a Christian or even necessarily concepts related to the church itself, but to simply answer the question of when someone looks at your behavior, notices that it's different, and asks, why are you different? What is this hope that you have that allows you to behave differently than other people? Where is that? Rather than talk about, well, the church began in Acts chapter 2, that's vitally important, but before that is the reason why the church began. 
And so we could answer that question by thinking about some of the big questions. You think about, well, why do we have that hope? Maybe this is just a moment before I give some, some ideas. Maybe ask yourself this question. Why do I have this hope? What is the reason that I have for this hope that is within me? That I will hopefully be able to be prepared to answer to somebody and to do so with these two concepts, gentleness, some translations say meekness, and respect, some translations say fear, and we'll get to that. So there are a few different sort of major topics, right? God. We believe that God exists. Our God, He is alive. We sing that song. Uh, we believe that there is purpose to reality. That, that, that the brute fact of reality that you can't go behind after you keep going back in time, you know, a kid asks, well, why is the sky blue? Well, because the way the light bends the, uh, in, the, in the atmosphere. Well, why does the atmosphere have what it has in it? Well, because of, well, what about that? Well, why because of, well, why about that? And you keep going back and eventually you have to say what? Well, if you're a Christian or a theist, you say, well, because God did it. Well, why did God do it? I don't know. God did it, right? And so that question is a question that everyone's going to have to ask. What is the thing that exists because it exists? The why question that doesn't have an answer beyond itself. And as Christians, we believe that that answer isn't matter. A bunch of dots, a bunch of stuff. We believe that that answer is a loving, personal, all-knowing, all-powerful God who transcends time, who transcends space, who created space and time and matter, who exists in and of himself, and as Christians, we would argue, in three persons. Don't, expect, don't understand exactly how that works. That concept is, is, is very large, too large, too great for us to fully comprehend. But you have God who exists, three persons in one, a perfect, loving relationship. And so, not out of necessity... Not out of loneliness, but out of graciousness, God created. And so we could explain to them that we believe thus that we were created for a reason. We are not an accident. We are not a mistake. That, that life exists for purposes, for reasons, that we are loved uh, and that we are blessed. We could then go to Genesis chapter 2. Because if you notice, the Bible never really argues for God's existence. Have you thought about that? You probably have. But you can't find a passage of Scripture where it says, all right, now here is why God exists. Here's how we can know that God exists. Now, that's not to say that sort of the classic arguments for God's existence can't be found in sort of oblique ways in the Bible. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Uh, that, that is speaking to what philosophers call the teleological argument, the design argument. Well, how can I know that there's a God? Well, there's design, and that design suggests a designer. So the, so the Bible is not going to necessarily give us the full details on these things. How does, how does Genesis 1-1 begin? In the beginning, God. God's existence is just assumed. So when people ask us about God, we might have to start with something other than the Bible. Because otherwise we're kind of question-begging. Because the Bible assumes God's existence, so you can't use the Bible necessarily to completely prove God's existence because it assumes that he already does exist. Does that kind of make sense? So we answer that question, then we go to Genesis, and we read about the creation, that Adam and Eve were created in God's image, and then we go to chapter 2, as we go on into chapter 3, and we learn about the fall of man. And we learn about what humans have done, that we were given a choice, that Adam and Eve were given a choice, they chose to reject what God asked of them, what God required of them, and that there were consequences for that. So we explain that to them. Look, we believe that we believe that our life has a purpose, and our purpose is to glorify God, but we also believe that there's a standard that exists outside of my mind and your mind and your mind and your mind. 
We don't get to just do whatever we want and call that good. Only God gets to make something and say that is good and not have to consult anybody else. You ever thought about that? We have to consult a standard above ourselves to be able to say whether that's good or that's not good. God created light. He separated the light from the darkness, and God didn't have to ask anybody. He was able to say it is good because he is the standard. And so there is a standard that exists beyond us. God told humanity some small bit of that standard to live up to, and we blew it. And so there is sin. And that sin caused separation. And then we can point them to Jesus. See, that's the problem. The, the, the good news is that we exist for a purpose. Life is not meaningless. The bad news is we have a standard that we fall short of, and because we have fallen short of that standard, we deserve separation from him forever. But the good news is Jesus has come to be able to give us life. And that brings us to the passage that we read. There's some great passages in the New Testament that, that if, if we're talking to somebody about Christianity that are beautiful summary passages of, of the gospel. And in fact, some folks have speculated that some of these might actually have been sort of early Christian hymns, early Christian songs, or early Christian sayings. I don't know if that's the case or not, and neither do they. Uh, but these are some interesting passages that really condense the, the, the basic truths of Christianity. And so these are good things perhaps to, to point somebody to. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. As we read earlier, long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's a lot in that. We could do entire sermons just thinking about that passage. God has spoken to people throughout time through the fathers and the prophets, but then he spoke to Jesus, this son who was appointed an heir of all things. And this son, the heir, also is the one through whom the world was created. This son is the radiance of the glory. He is the exact image of God. And the universe continues to exist because he upholds it by the word of his power. And he has made purification of that sin problem that you and I and all of us are beset with. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a pretty good hope, isn't it? We were lost, and yet we can be found. Other wonderful passages to point people to when we're answering this question. Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 11, talking about Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus died on that cross, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." A couple other passages real quickly. Another good one, Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Might give you a clue of the context of, of, of where Peter's talking to, what's going on here. 
uh, if, you're not, if it doesn't jump out to you by the chapter number, which sometimes chapter numbers don't necessarily jump out at me. I've always had trouble with remembering the numbers. It's like, remember your favorite scene in that movie? Yes, it happens at one hour, 25 minutes, and 36 seconds into a movie. I, I don't remember numbers so well, uh, so maybe you can relate to that. Uh, but, G, but Peter says, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. There's some hope, isn't it? Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what your family is. If you do what he asks, if you come to him and fear him, you can be found acceptable. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And the last but not least, Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, possibly, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, we've been, we've been justified, we've been counted as right. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There will be a judgment. And because of what Jesus has done, we can be saved from that. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So when someone comes and asks us, we have content that we can present to them. There is a God, there is sin, there is a standard. The violation of that standard is sin. We've sinned. Jesus came to forgive us of our sins. And if we follow him, we can have that forgiveness and that hope. And we don't have a lot of time to go into this, but the reality is, again, going back to this idea of the Cheesecake Factory, so many options, there are going to be aspects of that story that some people are going to find appealing. There are going to be aspects that probably most people are going to find appealing. But there are going to be aspects of that that people aren't necessarily going to like. I mean, we shouldn't necessarily expect to say, well, let me just tell you, God, Jesus, sin, salvation, all right, now time to become a Christian. They may have questions. They may, they, the asking of the hope that lies within us might not end with them asking and us giving an explication of what we believe. Because again, they might look at the world around them and they might say, well, what you say doesn't seem to quite match up with some of the things that other people in the world say. And I know that you're a loving, caring person, and that's great, but that doesn't mean that you're right, and that's a valid point. People can be sincerely wrong, can they not? What did Paul say about himself? That he was very zealous for God, so zealous that he was persecuting Christians, but what did he lack? Knowledge. 
He, in fact, he says in the book of Romans, as he was talking about that, that that's the issue with his Jewish countrymen. They had a zeal for God, but not with knowledge. The fact that someone believes something passionately, so passionately that they are willing to die for it or to sacrifice in other ways, gets our attention. But that doesn't mean that they're, they're right, that their beliefs are true. It just means they believe them very strongly. That's a reality. I don't think that's contradicting anything that Jesus has said. Um, and so they're going to ask us, or they might ask us questions. Well, if, if you say that God exists, but what about evolution? What about the Big Bang? You know, what, what about, uh, you say that this God is not just all-knowing and all-powerful, but all-loving. Well, how can an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful God allow for there to be sin and su- or pain and suffering in the world? If God's all-loving, He wouldn't want us to suffer. If He's all-knowing, He knows how to make it so that we don't have to suffer. And if He's all-powerful, then He's got the power to make it happen. And yet we're suffering in the world. And innocent people suffer. Innocent people suffer. What's up with that? How do we answer that? That's a very important question. And, and the fact that we live a good life is going to perhaps bring us to those situations, but it doesn't give us the answer to those questions. And for us to be able to say, well, look, you just got to trust me because I'm trying to live a good life. For some people, that's going to be enough, but for some people, it's not. And again, in a world in which there's so many other options for religious belief, someone would say, well, I'm going to reject that and find something that doesn't offer that problem. So you say there's a God. I don't get that. They may have questions about sin. You say there's a standard of right and wrong. Well, you're just pushing your morality on me. Who are you to say what's right or wrong? And of course, part of the response is I'm not. I'm not trying to push my morality on you. I'm trying to tell you what I believe God says is right and wrong, and he's the standard. Now, people are going to have questions about the things that the New Testament claims to be right and wrong, and, and that doesn't seem to match with some of the things that our society says. There are going to be very serious questions about that. And again, we have to be able to find a way to answer those, or at least to begin to give an answer. These are not always questions we can fully answer. What about Jesus? Well, some people say that Jesus didn't really live. Some people say that he lived and that maybe he was a, a prophet in some sense, but he certainly didn't rise from the dead. How can you show that to be true? Why should I believe in that? And there are good reasons for believing in that. But again, just being able to say, well, look, I'm trying to be a good person is not going to be enough to, to answer a person's questions in that matter. And again, not suggesting that anybody's saying otherwise, but just to remind ourselves of this other side of the coin. And in a pluralistic society, these questions are going to come up. What about forgiveness? You know, I can really be forgiven? This is sort of a different angle. I've done some really bad stuff. You're saying I can be forgiven of the things that I've done? You don't know what I've done. If you, know, if you knew what I've done, you wouldn't be saying I could be forgiven. How do you, how do you respond to that? Of course, we don't have time to, 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 to look at these questions in depth. But I want us to go back to the latter part of our, our passage in 1 Peter. Let's read it again. He says, we'll begin in verse number 15. Yeah, let's, back, let's back up to verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, just stop right there, reminding us that this life that we live is not only going to attract positive attention, but it's going to attract negative attention. Some people are going to be impressed as we strive to live. We're not going to do it perfectly, of course, but as we strive to live according to the standard that Jesus set for us, it's going to draw attention uh, attention of admiration and attention of not liking it. How about that? There's a big word, but I never pronounced that big word right. I don't even know if it's the right big word, so attention that says, I don't like it. So, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
We're not always going to have the answers. Um, and, and even when we think we have the answers, we have to realize that we are finite. We are limited. We can make mistakes. And so I'm not the standard. You're not the standard. When someone's asking us questions, well, let me tell you because I've got all the answers. We don't have all the answers. Um, we can be wrong. And so we strive to make sure that we're doing what God would have us to do and we're believing what is true. And we present our defense, our apologetic, our apologia. That's, that's the word there for defense. With gentleness and respect. The word gentleness, your translation might say meekness. The, those two words, meekness sometimes kind of has almost carried a, a false connotation in our minds of sort of, of weakness. Meekness and weakness. But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power restrained. It's power under control. That's why the English standard uh, translators use gentleness. It's probably a pretty good word. I'm going to show them what for. No, you're not going to show them what for. I'm not going to show them what for. We're going to speak in words and tones in an approach that is gentle. And to do so with, English standard says, respect. Other translations say fear. The word here is the word that we get phobia from, like arachnophobia, fear of spiders, which I kind of have a little bit. Uh, or triskaidekaphobia. Anybody know what that is? It's the fear of the number 13. That's a thing, apparently. You know, 13. A bad number, I'm afraid of it. I, you know, you go to a hotel, you don't want to be on the 13th floor. So what did the hotel do? They got rid of the 13th floor, right? It's, 10, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 11, 12, 14. You know, what room are you in? 13, uh, 1401. No, you're not. You're in 13th floor. The hotel's trying to make you feel better. You jump out the window, it'll be 13 floors down. Uh, and so I didn't come up with that joke that somebody else, but that's okay. You can laugh. Um, all these fears that we have, phobia, phobia, that's the word. So the English standard writers here might be kind of lowballing it a little bit. Well, we'll do so with respect. This word is sometimes used of the, of the respect that a woman is to have for her husband. So maybe that's kind of where they're going. But most of the time, this word just means fear. These are serious matters. And when we speak to people and we try to give an answer, uh, we realize that, that lives, eternal souls are at stake. And ultimately, somebody is, is not, uh, I am not, you are not. When people ask us questions, we are not responsible for the decisions of others. But we are still dealing with an eternal soul the person that we're speaking to, and these are important matters. And so we have to be able to, to wrestle with these questions, and we're not always going to have the answers, but, but we are encouraged to live as we ought to, to draw people's attention, and to live as we ought to because it's how we ought to live. But then also, when they do ask, to be able to start to answer those questions and to say, look, maybe I don't have all the answers, but let's work at it together. Maybe together we can figure out the answers. Uh, it's a beautiful thing that we have called to with both sides of this wonderful coin of living the Christian life. If you're not a Christian this morning, we encourage you to become one. And this has not necessarily been an evangelistic sermon. It's been a sermon sort of about evangelism. Um, but if you realize that there is a God, that there is a standard, that you've fallen short of that standard, that you need forgiveness, and that Jesus has died so that you can be forgiven, and you are willing to repent of your sins, to change your mind about those sins, to change the way that you live, and to become a Christian, to be baptized, we encourage you to do that this morning, and we'd love to help you with that. If you're a Christian, and you've fallen away, you're struggling with difficult times, in any way you need the prayers of the church, we would love to help you with that as well. So please let us know right now, if we can, as you stand and we sing.